contrasting that and telling you that when a person disciplines himself physically and he enters into a spiritual world, that becomes what life is all about. I once heard it described from a mentor at, at the Mir, actually. He said, you know, some people look at Torah and mitzvahs as a tax on life. An honest person knows taxes are important. He pays taxes, but nobody goes out of his way to pay taxes on Mahadrid. Nobody adds more taxes just, just for the fun of it. You, you do whatever you can legally to minimize your tax burden, and that's perfectly okay. So he said, looking at the world of Torah and mitzvahs as being what you live for, what you enjoy, that's what it's about. So I guess if I can sort of put a finger on the ethos of that world that we would loosely describe as Haredi, one would say to find the meaning of life, the pleasure of life, the 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 um, of life in the world of ruchnius. There are some um, nuances in that that distinguish different subgroups. For instance, the world that I grew up in, learning, understanding, learning, um, getting yourself very very deep into learning was what it was about. There was a world by Hasidim where davening and getting into davening and enjoying the davening and living the davening, that's what it's about, primarily. And there are a group of people where diktaka mitzvahs becomes their life and their world, and that's what it's important. So they will look for very, very big hidurim in, in matzah and chametz, in sukkah and so on, and that's what their life is going to be about. So I believe a common denominator of all the groups that one might label um, with the title Haredi would be that they would like to find their lives as immersed in, enjoying the spiritual pleasure of whatever it is that they're doing and defining a life well-lived by that and looking forward to it, that be their world. That, I would say, is a positive definition of this. There is another defining um, concept, which I would say is the negative defining concept, and it is as follows. I'm going to read a Rambam in Perik Yud Aleph of Hilchas Avodos Kochavim. It's Perikid Aleph in Hilchos Avodazara. And the Rambam deals with the prohibition of Chukos Ha'akum. It's a very, very notoriously difficult halacha to pin down because um, what exactly is called Chukos So on the halachic level, it's one of the things that's really difficult to pin down. But certainly conceptually, the Rambam gives us a very important framework. Ein holchem bechukos ha'akum, you can't, you, you, you're not supposed to go in the way of chukos ha'akum. Chukos means statues, but it doesn't mean that in this context. We'll see in a second. Velo medamilahem, you do not emulate them, imitate them. Loba malbush, not in the clothing you wear. Loba ser, not in your haircut. Ukiyotsu behen. 
שנאמה ולא שכו רוקסה גויים, ונאמה רוקסה לא סלחו, ונאמה ישלם לך פינקשה אחריהם. You have a lot, a lot of פסוקים that tell you not to follow the מרייז and the culture of the society. הכל בעין אחד הוא. It's all one point. It's telling us that we not be similar to them in any of our accoutrements, in any of, in any of our um, way of life, in our culture. The Jew needs to be distinct, different. And it should be recognized by his clothing, by his mannerisms, etc. As he is different in what he believes and understands. One more line. And, and like it says in the, in the Pasuk, I will make you different than other nations. So the Rambam here tells us that we need to be culturally distinct from other nations. And the Rambam, I think, adds a little point over here that I think is significant. The Rambam's words in Mishnah Torah are usually very, very carefully chosen. He says, just as we don't believe, think, and understand as they do, that's how we need to dress differently and act differently. I think the Rambam here is, is, is pointing to the following phenomena. He says, a person's, if we ask ourselves, what is a person's culture, um, mannerisms, speech, etc., reflect? And the answer is something about your mindset. Somebody who's cool dresses a certain way. Somebody who's nerdy dresses a certain way. Somebody who's weird dresses a different way. People tend to dress in ways that reflect what they think, what they believe. Somebody likes dressing casually. Somebody likes dressing very formally. Somebody likes dressing very, very expensively, and so on. They're reflections of something about your perception of things. So if you really have a different set of beliefs and understandings, then the people around you, doesn't it make sense that you act differently, dress differently, and so on? So I think that um, I think that what one would um, say in the way of um, explaining what is the big um, losa say that would define the Haredi world, it would be a desire to be different and distinct than the people around them. Now that formula itself. Um, comes in many, many, many variations. Uh, a Hasidic person will, will make a point of not knowing English. He will dress the way they dressed in Poland or in Russia uh, 100 years ago, 200, whenever, whenever they set the lavush, there will be almost zero in their, in their accommodation to any of the culture of the world around them. There are people, myself, where I wear a short jacket, wear a tie, um, try to speak English on occasion, and uh, you know things of that nature. So that's the way uh, that that's that's how we accommodate, and everything in between. Uh, it's very variations. 
Um, so again, that, that's why there's a broad spectrum of the level of cultural accommodation. But at the end of the day, everyone feels we are different. It's very, very difficult for a person to live that way. If you work in, 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 in society at large, unless you own a grocery store, you're going to be interacting with people. Normal people like to feel that they're part of society. Nobody likes to feel weird. And it is difficult. But that, I think, is the defining factor. So we have two, what I feel are the most important defining factors of this world that's loosely labeled Haredi. One is the wanting to derive the pleasure of life and the meaning of life from some aspect of Torah and Ruchnius. Two, the, the need, desire, or at least the understanding that we're different, we are different, and um, we need to be proud of being different, and we need to understand we, we interact with people, but we're not part of the larger, greater culture, wherever we might be. Those are two, I think, defining factors of it. Um, I'd like to say a few words about how, where I got to that world. I grew up in the 50s and 60s in New York. My parents were Holocaust survivors, and both of them. Um, my mother, my father came from Lithuania. He had learned in yeshivas, but he was married with children. He lost his first wife and children in the war. And he had learned in yeshivas, but he was a businessman when the war came and destroyed everything. My mother came from a, her father, I think, was Hasidic, but her family, like, like was unfortunately very common, had rebelled against it. And they, they were very, very, had a lot of negative sense about it. I grew up in New York in those years, the 50s and 60s. And I went to a school that I think it, it, it would probably be considered centrist. I, I hate labeling things, but it was considered um, it, it was considered to be somewhere in the middle. It, it really was a school that didn't have a, um, a clear political affiliation. They had everything from Hasidic kids to non-religious kids something that you can't imagine today being in one school. I think it, it would be mind-boggling. It was a huge school when it started. And then as the demographics went off, they, they sort of, uh, it sort of evaporated and it closed in the 70s. That was the school I went to. Um, I, um, I, you know, I, I had different paths open for me. I did, I did very well in my SATs and so on. Um, but... For some reason, I decided I would go to Israel to learn for a year. It was very, very uncommon in those days. Very few people went at all to any yeshiva. Going to yeshiva high school was considered to be as religious as you could be. At Israel, nobody went to, almost nobody went to. And um, it was very few people went to yeshiva at all. Lakewood was tiny. There were 100, 200 people in Lakewood. That, that was it. But I decided, I had a whole bunch of reasons, somebody had pushed me to it, and I, I, I was turned on. I wanted, I liked learning a lot, and I went there. And I went to the Mir Yeshiva in 1970. And right, right after I graduated, it was an unusual move. And a lot more than the, uh, than the arguments, words, explanations were the people I saw. 
um, the most profound impact on me were the people that I met. And I realized what it means to be an Adam God, a great person. Reb Nachum Partzabitz was world famous for Shiurim. He was, he said the main shir in the main yeshiva. And his depth, his brilliance, his search for emes, his willingness to say I was wrong because I see it a bit differently now. His living the sugya, and like I spoke before, his joy at being able to finally understand um, the definition of a certain idea, how to work it out, was incredible. It radiated. There was a, a, an honesty, a purity. There was a, his life was simple beyond words. He lived in the basement of the yeshiva in two tiny bedrooms. The boys had to go sleep in the yeshiva office because there was no room in the house. And you could come anytime you wanted him to speak and learning. Uh, at one o'clock, if you're still up, you could knock on the door and come in and, and talk and tell him chidushim you thought of or whatever. That was incredible. I'd not seen anything even close to that. A second person who made an incredible impression on me was Rabbi Moshe Shapiro, who passed away a few years ago. Um, his depth of machshava was incredible. His, his knowledge and his way of structuring things, explaining things. And again, he had nothing but that. He was somebody who barely slept, lived two tiny bedrooms. Again, his, his, his son had to wait till the last person left the house to, to be able to go to sleep in the living room. That was what it was like. And, and, he, and he was totally immersed. And there was, there, there was a, a joy. In other words, I guess it was a combination of seeing three things on people, seeing um, a depth of knowledge and understanding that was simply incredible. And it's one thing when you hear stories, it's another thing when you speak to somebody and wherever you're talking, he, he, he has it on his fingertips. He's with you at every step of the way and way ahead of you. So that was one. Two, the absolute simplicity of their own lives. Rebel Yashiv lived in a room and a half. I was there a few times there, Shilas. There was nothing. He lived in, in, there's a tiny bedroom plus a big room and a kitchen that would probably big as a contemporary sink, literally. And that was it. And, and, and from there, 24 seven, he was learning, answering Shilas and so on. Rav Shoma Zalman, same thing. Rav Shapiro, all of these people, their simplicity of life, was incredible, and their joy of life was incredible. We spoke at the Chaibahem. I didn't see people were suffering. I didn't see, I saw the happiest people I ever met. People whose love of Chachma was something that radiated. You, you said to yourself, not I wish I could be as a big time Chachm. You knew that you're not going to make it. They were, they were brilliant people, and they, were, they just had almost superhuman abilities. But you could say to yourself, I wish I'll be as happy with my life as they have with their lives. An incredible spiritual life. You, you began to realize that spiritual is not about denying an asceticism for the sake of asceticism. It's, um, it, it, it's, it's about connecting to, to, to pleasures that you can't have when you're, when you're immersed 
in gross pleasures. If 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 a hot dog and a beer and a football game talks to you, then 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 this is not going to talk to you. It's 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 your 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 pleasure level is at a very low level. It's just simply gratifying a body. You, you, so your your soul will never feel that joy when you pull away from it and you feel it. It's incredible. And that was something that really drew me. And I saw it many people. I saw Reb Noach Weinberg. I worked in Asia for a few years when I was in, in 1983. He was a giant in his world. He wasn't a giant in, in bringing people to Yiddishkeit only. He was a giant in living that. His heart ached on the people that didn't know their Judaism. He was thrilled when somebody discovered it. He had no self. And he was all joy that he's privileged to do this. And it's, these are things that are unfortunately hard to convey unless you live it. So if I were to ask myself, what are the things that drew me? And I believe drew many people. It was the contact with giants. We were fortunate that there were, the numbers were small and, and, and the people were, were giants and you could interact with them. And you could, and, and you began to see my, my father of Racha, was the Rosh Hashiva to me, Yeshiva, Rebbeinish Finkel. Um, again, he took no salary from the Yeshiva. They lived in utterly simple, two small bedroom apartments. They were always putting up people, always feeding people. My mother-in-law was caring for all sorts of people 24-7. The phone never stopped ringing. And she was always patiently there for people. And my father-in-law had the burden of the Yeshiva, and there was never a complaint. He didn't, he didn't talk about it. This was his job. This was his life. And this was it. Those were all things that I guess um, drew me to it and made me want to be part of it. Um, if, if you would like to, we could, we could ask, we could take a question or two. I don't know what your schedule is. Would you like to have some question or something? I, I, I don't know what your, your framework is. I don't, I don't have specific questions. Yeah, so the, one of the one of the questions that we discussed yesterday that we wanted to uh, to be addressed by each of the speakers was the approach towards both Zionism and women's roles, um, and then we also had a moral dilemma that we wanted to, to ask Rebbe as well. Okay, so so uh, so Zion. So let let's understand in principle why the Haredi world generally was either opposed or reluctant to adapt Zionism, and then we'll try to explain where it's gone from there. The, 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 the ideology of Zionism at its core was, a, or at least it was felt that way, defining Jewish people by geography, with religion being one of the elements of it. For instance, let's give an example. France is defined by living in France, um, speaking French, being culturally French, being Catholic in the old days. Today, it's it's uh, what do you call the Ciento or what do they call secularism? But being Catholic was a true statement that French people were Catholic, but it wasn't what defined uh, a Frenchman. Same with Italian and so on. So Zionism was understood to be the ideology where Jewish people are defined by geography. You're not a real Jew, or the Jewish people are the people who live in the land of Israel, speak of it, and religion is a factor. It's an optional factor, or it is a factor, and that's about it. That was seen as being 
in direct contradiction with our understanding that Jewish people are defined as Amashem, the nation that has forged a covenant with God. It means that our existence as a nation supersedes geography. Eretz Yisrael is the place where God chose to be closest to us, and we yearn for it. But we define, so, uh, so we, and this, I mean, historically, we're the only nation that has survived landless, countryless um, for 2,000 years, and we still, there's no such thing as a third generation American-Ukrainian or American anything, um, because they're Americans. They've long, nobody cares if the Zayda was Ukrainian or whatever it is. We, I'm Yisrael, define ourselves as Yisrael, even though thousands of years have elapsed from our being there. So there was a position that way. People also need to understand, in Europe in those days, there was a lot of enmity. People took their ideologies very seriously. And you had Zionists, the majority of them, I don't know how to say it nicely, detested religious Judaism in the sense that it had kept people um, miserable and wretched. You had socialist Jews who detested Zionists and religious Jews. You you had every you had, you had um, communist Jews who detested socialists and this. People had very sharp ideas, and um, the Haredi world as such felt under attack, and and drew a line around itself to separate itself. With the advent of the state of Israel, there was a reality in place. It stopped being an ideology, and it's now reality the way the way the French government is a French government. And whether you like the French ideology or not, there's a government in place and so on. That caused a splintering of how to deal with it. Um, some groups said, it's a government, whatever the ideology of, of the state is, that's their business. But it's a government and we need to deal with it the way you deal with the government, the laws, and so on and so forth. Um, and this was by and large most of the yeshivas, the Lutheran yeshivas. That was the approach. It, it's a reality, it's a country, it's a state, it needs to be kept safe. This is where the Jews live, and so on and so forth. Um, there was some people re- retained that vehement anti-Zionism. Um, you know, that again, from my point of view, it's a relic of of, of 100 years ago that's not relevant, but some people retain that. So the, the feeling is between being ideologically distant, but pragmatic about interaction with the, and the need for, for, for good governance and a good country, to people that are still fighting an ideological battle, which somehow they have to try to figure out how it's going to work in a, in, in a country. As far as women's role goes, um, there's generally been a, a sense, A, to resist outside pressures. In other words, because of what we spoke about of, um, of, of not, ha- not adapting the, the cultural um, sense of people around, the, 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 the drive to have um, women involved in every facet of life has been much, much slower and I'll try to, again, it's a very short time and it's a complicated issue. I would say it's as follows. The Torah does seem to describe certain roles of leadership that are off limits for a woman, for whatever reason. Um, it's such as a king, 
and it extends to Srara, which is hard to define halachically, but it extends to some level of authority. Um, it tends to also define um, roles such as a, a dayan in court, making decisions is a woman cannot. And the, the sense is that things that would be similar need to follow along those lines. Um, the, uh, the, 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 the level of what's appropriate for a woman to learn today is part of that same issue of being pragmatic. The reality is women today enjoy very good education. And if they're not going to have, if they're not going to have an education that is as robust as, as a boy's, um, they will, um, they, they won't have the basis for Judaism in life. People today don't sit in their corners, by and large. So there's a varying degrees of accommodation. Even what you would call the creative world, it ranges from being um, very, a very strong, robust education to something kind of much less than that. Um, there is another element, and that is the tzniyas element. In other words, how appropriate is it for a woman to be a very public figure, and again, that goes from range from A to Z. The one thing I would like to say, and I think I say it with full honesty, is I live in that world. I live, I meet a wide range of people. The idea that women in the in this in, our, in the Haredi world feel oppressed or down, I think is a lie. There are women that have left, and that's fine. There are many people have left Orthodox Judaism. So what? Um, even Hasidic women, even Satma women, I, I've, I've met many. I don't think it's at all right in any way to say they feel oppressed. They feel accomplished. Even like Satma Rav, who you would consider to be most extreme Haredi person, his wife has an equal voice, believe it or not. She's not a public figure. I know because I actually have some, some dealings. Um, she could put a foot down and, and her husband, I know it from Rosh Hashivas. Rosh Hashivas tend to consider their wives kind of equal partners. And if they feel very strongly about something, there's, they have, it's, it's, it's a lot behind the scenes. But it's important to understand. I would suggest, we don't have much time left. I would suggest, I assume most people will be going to Israel next year, to spend some time to find a day or two um, to spend in a yeshiva like the mirror, we, we get a feel for what it is people immerse that make this lives. To spend some time davening in a place like Karlin or Abarlach, Toldasaran, which is extremely powerful. And yes, there are every society has its shortcomings. You don't have to look at the shortcomings. You don't have to ask yourself, do I want to become a Karlin Chassid? You do not need to become, but get a feel of what it means people immersed in davening. If you can eat by somebody for a Shabbos, who's very Haredi, take a look at the women and get a sense, do the women feel oppressed? Do they feel fulfilled, accomplished? What are the dynamics? It's true that you cannot live like that. And I can also, my wife probably could also not live like that. But, it, but understanding the power and the beauty of that world, I think is the generator of the energy for the rest of the world. Thank you so, so much. You guys want me to ask that uh, more? One more to stop you. I'm going to ask it quickly. Okay, a quick, a quick moral dilemma that the students asked is if, if you had a box in front of you 
with the answer of whether God exists or not? Would you choose to open it or not? Um, be, being, being that I'm a good yeshiva bacha, I've learned to avoid dilemmas by positing a third, a, a third point. I, I want. I want to. I, I want to give a muscle. You have a minute or two time, or, or not? Yeah, we have like a minute or two. A minute or two. Okay. Um, let's say a person is married, and he has a good marriage, and someone comes to him and he says, "Let me probe a little bit and see if your marriage is a really good marriage or not." What would you say? So, if a person has problems enough that force the issue, you would go. If not, you say to yourself, you know what? Anyone can stir up trouble. The, whether God exists or not is not answerable or provable in any one yes or no. It's part of a comp, and that's part of what we said. We, 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 don't, we don't look at God as something that exists and tells us what to do, and ipso facto, we have to do it. It's what life is about. And if a person feels good and happy and fulfilled in his life, the, the, so I don't need a marriage counselor. I've been married Baruch Hashem, for 47, going on 48 years. I don't need a marriage counselor with a clipboard to, to, to answer the question if I'm married happily or not. And I, I, I would never sit down. I feel degrading to do that. Um, so, so the relationship to God should never be, it's, that's not, if it's a yes or no in a box, then we're talking about something else. That's the way I would look at it. That's why I would feel it. Amazing. Thank you so, so much again for your time. Okay. Very nice. insightful, uh, it was really amazing. Thank you so, so much. Okay. Okay. Thank you very much. All the best. Take care. Bye.